0: So John chapter 4, I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had had that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. <clears throat> Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied so he was, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, "Give me water for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, "How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans." Jesus said to her, "'You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true.' The woman said to him, "'Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship.' Jesus said to her, "'Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father.' I, who speak to you, am he.
1: Um, In 2005, at Kenyon College, a private liberal arts college in Ohio, the commencement address was given by David Foster Wallace, an American novelist and professor of English. Uh, It's really worth listening to. It's engaging, humorous, thought-provoking, insightful. In his address, Wallace said this, and um, as you hear these words, know that Wallace was not a Christian and never ascribed to any organized religion. He said this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. You see what he's saying? He's saying we all give ourselves to something in search for meaning for life. We give ourselves, we worship whatever it is we think will make sense of life for us. But as we do, Wallace says, and I quote, Pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. And then he explains, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally bury you. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It's brilliantly insightful. Everybody worships something, and pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. And desperately, that is what we see here in John chapter 4, and the first point on the outline, false worship eats you alive, Now, for the second week running, we're looking at this fascinating encounter between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. If you were here last week, you'll recall that in verse 14, Jesus offered the woman life-giving, thirst-quenching, immortality-promising water. Here was this woman in the heat of the day, lowering her bucket into Jacob's well. She was thirsty, but as we saw last week, Jesus knew that she was not only physically thirsty, he knew she was spiritually thirsty too. And so Jesus offered her water that quenches an otherwise insatiable thirst, water that, that gives um, meaning in life. And more than that, you'll see verse 14, Jesus offered water that will well up to eternal life. It, it's a staggering offer to know what life is all about now and to know that you can have forever beyond the grave eternal life that really matters. And it begs the question, who did Jesus think he was? I mean, who on earth would ever dream of saying that they can give you not just the meaning of life, but eternal life after death? But that is what Jesus is promising here. It's a mind-blowing offer. And it's no surprise that this woman didn't fully understand what Jesus was talking about. I mean, who would? That said, she understood enough to know that she wanted in on the deal. So there she says, verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. And Jesus said to her, verse 16, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. And in that one penetrating and frankly devastating sentence, we get to the issue of worship. Everybody worships something. And this woman was worshiping men in that she looked for satisfaction and meaning in the arms of men. Uh, throughout her life. One man after another had come and then gone. One marriage after another had started and then failed. And I'm guessing one extramarital affair after another had begun in heart racing, exciting rapture and then ended in heartbreaking, excruciating rupture. But rather than conclude that she wasn't looking in the right place, that men weren't the answer after all, this woman just assumed that she hadn't yet found the right man. And so her life was littered by a list of licentious lads, if I can put it that way. In the words of David Foster Wallace, she'd been eaten alive by the thing she worshipped. Eaten up inside by by a longing that was never satisfied, eaten away in her soul with the guilt of wrecking marriage after marriage, and then beaten up and thrown out by an unforgiving world that rarely overlooks our failures. That's why she went to the well in the heat of the day. And what do they say? Um, only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. Well, look, the other women of her village were not mad or English or men. And so they all went to the well early in the morning to collect water. But this woman was ostracized today, we'd say, cancelled by the culture. I imagine that every time she went out in public, she'd either be on the receiving end of snide, cutting remarks or be completely blanked and ignored and shunned. Either way, it wasn't fun going out. Getting insulted or getting the cold shoulder day after day really hurt. So she collected water from the well at a time when no one except mad dogs and Englishmen would be out in the midday sun. Uh, we saw that last week in verse 6. Uh, this woman reminds me of a young woman I met some years back um, Let's call her Samantha. She turned up on a, on a Sunday at the church that I was at at the time. Uh, then on the Tuesday of that week, she came along to the Christian Explored course that I was running. And when I asked her what had brought her along to church and to Christian Explored, she answered with surprising candor. She said to me that she'd been raised in a Christian home. Growing up, she always went to church on a Sunday in the church youth group on a Friday. Uh, and then she went off to university and in her words, went wild. Drink, drugs, and dudes was, I think, what she said. And it turns out, especially the dudes. Uh, She'd lost count of the men she'd slept with. And she said, I longed that each sexual encounter would catch me the man of my dreams. I just wanted to find a man who would love me and keep me safe and secure. Uh, But she said, none of them wanted me. They just wanted sex. And every time I met a man and then slept with a man and then lost the man, a little bit more of me died inside. So she said, I've swallowed my pride and come to church to see if what my parents taught me all those years ago was right. You see, pretty much anything we give our lives to will eat us alive. For this woman in the first century, in John chapter 4, and Samantha in the 21st century, it was relationships. But if it's not relationships, it'll be something else. Money, and you'll never have enough. Beauty, and you'll always feel ugly. Power, and you'll always feel weak. Intellect, and you'll always feel stupid. Success, and you'll always feel a failure. One way and another, we'll always be left wanting more. That need for our thirst to be quenched. And to quote David Foster Wallace just one more time, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They're the kind of worship you gradually slip into day after day without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. It's alarming. We don't even notice it. We're not even conscious that we're worshipping these things, but somehow these other gods have sneaked up on us and grabbed us and, and then taken control of us. And sometimes it's only after we've been at the beck and call for years that we realise what's been happening. Sometimes it's a life crisis that brings us to the devastating realisation that we've been worshipping at the altar of success or security or status or whatever and it hasn't delivered more than that, that it's actually eaten us alive. Let me tell you about Claire. Again, not her real name. I met her at another church I was preaching at some time back. I asked her how she'd come to know Jesus and she told me that she'd been a gymnast. uh, I slept, ate, and breathed gymnastics while I was growing up, she said. And she was good. She was part of the GB team. But then one day in training, one awkward fall when she was vaulting left her with a terrible ankle injury. Months and months and months of painful rehab followed. And then shortly after she finally got back to training, um, her coaches told her what she suspected all along. And the impact of her injury meant that she'd never be able to reach the standard. And so her Olympic dream was over. And so everything she'd worked for since she was a little girl, all the dedicated years of sacrificing everything outside of gymnastics had all been taken away from her in one devastating moment, in one awkward landing. And for the next decade, in her words, I became more and more bitter and fell into a deep depression. Everything I wanted, everything I thought would bring me success and recognition, everything that had come to define me and promise me happiness and fame had been taken away. And long story short, 18 years after her injury, she became a Christian. And she said to me, when I met her that day in Jesus, I met the one who could give me what I always wanted. See, that's clear. It took a crisis to bring her to realise that the thing she worshipped, gymnastics, and with it, success and significance, was a cruel God. And for this woman at Jacob's Well, who tried one man after another and who'd been cancelled by her culture, for this woman, it was this encounter with Jesus which opened her eyes to her plight. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if uh, this lunchtime, there aren't some here and it's maybe dawning on you. As you hear Jesus speak to this woman, you're realising that something has kind of crept up on you and that, that that something is now calling the shots in your life, controlling your life, promising to give you so much, but leaving you thirsty and eating you alive in the process. Well, that's what's going on with this woman. She's out in the midday sun and now she's met this stranger And he's not a mad dog or an Englishman, he's a Jew. And he talked to her when everyone else avoided her. And most arresting of all, he knew everything about her. And so in verse 17, she said that she didn't have a husband. And he said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. It's quite a moment. How could this stranger from another country know her sordid past? And knowing it, why would he give her the time of day? Well, for this woman, there was only one explanation. Do you see it there, verse 19? The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And that leads us into our second point. True worship gives life and fulfillment. This is a fascinating moment. This woman is convinced that a Jewish prophet has just rocked up into her world and exposed her for worshipping the wrong thing, men. And so she assumes the next thing this Jewish prophet is going to do is to talk to her about where she should be worshipping. So she gets in first. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, of course, this may not mean much to us, but it was a huge bone of contention back in the day. Jews, of which Jesus was one, and Samaritans, of which the woman was one, Jews and Samaritans back then would have argued fiercely over the right place to worship God. For Samaritans, worship should happen right about where Jesus and the woman were standing when they were having this conversation. You see verse 20, on this mountain, as the woman put it. For the Jews, verse 20, you had to go to Jerusalem and to the temple to worship God. It was a hotly contested dispute between Samaritans and Jews. But while the specifics of the debates differ from age to age and culture to culture and religion to religion, while the specifics differ, the place of worship is always an issue. For for the Samaritans, it was on this mountain. For the Jews, it was in Jerusalem. For Muslims, it's a pilgrimage to Mecca and weekly in the mosque. For many Christians, wrongly I might add, it's in a cathedral or a particular church building. Every religion has its own opinion on the right place to worship. But you don't need to be part of any organised religion to enter into that debate about the right place to worship. For pagans, it's Stonehenge. For nature lovers, it's the great outdoors. That's where they feel close to God. For others, it's the golf course or the football stadium. I remember one bloke saying to me, oh, you won't find me in the church, Vicar. I worship on the golf course. Now, I didn't know him well enough to make any judgment call on his life, but I have met men whose worship on the golf course has seen them sacrifice their wife and family on the altar of the 18th green, or maybe the 19th green, (laughs) For them, golf really is the God they put first at the expense of others. And that is true of many football supporters too. Go to Old Trafford, the home of Manchester United, and in the Stretford End, you'll see a banner uh, like this. I think it's going to come up. Uh, One Love, MUFC, Manchester United Football Club, The Religion. It's up there every week. A few seasons back, Leeds United employed a brilliant coach called Marcelo Bielsa. He got them promoted to the Premier League after years in the lower divisions. And all over the city of Leeds, you'd see bumper stickers and graffiti saying, in Bielsa we trust. Not in God we trust, in Bielsa we trust. On Boxing Day, I went with my son-in-law to watch Sheffield United versus Luton Town. He's a big Luton Town fan. We had a great time. But while I was there, it struck me again, as it has before. There's a lot of worship going on in a football stadium. The stadium is the Great Cathedral. The fans sing their hymns. The service begins when the gods run onto the pitch. And it's so important that the result has huge impact on many people's lives. A friend of mine used to live and work in Newcastle for many years. He told me that domestic violence figures goes up whenever Newcastle United lose. Here are men investing thousands and thousands of pounds on season tickets, traveling to away games, buying replica shirts, and religiously attending worship at St. James's Park. And it matters to them so much that when the magpies lose, they get angry and they take it out. Some of them take it out on their wives and their girlfriends. And never mind in sport. We can see how people worship in the great ideologies of the world too. Two weeks ago, I was talking to a good friend of mine who lived and worked in Russia and Ukraine for several years. He said to me, in Eastern Europe, they used to say that atheistic communism looked very much like a religion. Then he went on to explain a revered text by Marx, a sacred figure in Lenin to venerate in his tomb on Red Square. I've done that. that. Well, I haven't venerated him, but I've been there. Neo-religious gatherings to praise the party. And a common identity to establish heaven on earth. Look, all that by way of saying everybody worships, whether it's in organized religion or not, it's a big issue where we worship. A religious building, a sacred site, the great outdoors, the golf course, the football stadium, or the political party gathering. The place of worship is important to us. And so this woman thought that this Jewish prophet would tell her she needs to worship in Jerusalem at the temple. So she said, verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus' response is really surprising and wonderfully liberating, verse 21. Jesus said to a woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus says, and we'll see how this unfolds, he says it's not about a place. And in the verses that follow, he says it's about a person. He says it's about him. In verse 22, Jesus said to the woman, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The Samaritans worshipped, but they didn't know what they worshipped. And that is true of anyone who doesn't worship the one true God of the Bible. Take the person who says they feel close to God in nature. When I gently ask people to tell me about this God that they feel close to in nature, usually they don't know and can't articulate who it is that they feel close to. When people have tried to describe the God they feel close to in nature, the God they describe is not anything like the one true God of the Bible. And ask them how they can be sure that the God they feel close to is real and can give them what they want in life and the next, well, they have nothing solid or certain on which to base their belief. Isn't that verse 22? What you worship, you do not know. But if I can be really frank, that is hopeless. If you don't know the thing you worship, how can you trust him or her or it? And how do you know this entity that you're worshipping isn't going to eat you alive and chew you up and spit you out like everything else in this broken world? So in verse 21, Jesus says, it's not about a place. And in verse 22, he says, you need to know who you're worshipping. And in verse 23, it all comes together. He says, the hour is coming and is now here because he's arrived when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. See, twice in these verses, Jesus talks about worshiping in spirit and truth. And when we can get to the bottom of that and what that means then we're very close to having this thirst-quenching, satisfying life that Jesus speaks about. So what is it? Well, first spirit, verse 24, very simply, God is spirit. He's everywhere. So as we've already thought, he, we, we'd have to be confined to one place to worship him. not live in a building. And truth? Well, in chapter 14 of this gospel, Jesus describes himself as the truth the truth about God, the truth who is the way to having a personal relationship with God and eternal life. And so to worship in spirit and truth is about worshiping Jesus, not a place but a person, a person who shows me what God is like because he is God, the one who can lead me to the Father. And the woman, again, understands something about this. She understands Jesus is talking about a person, See, verse 25, the woman said to Jesus, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the great I am. The one true God who reveals to us what God is like. And he's wonderful. He can be trusted. It's safe to worship him. It's actually safe to give ourselves wholly to him because he will treat us with dignity and kindness all the time, just as he did this woman. And he'll treat us with grace and forgiveness whenever we get it wrong, just as he did this woman. He won't eat you alive. Even as he asks you to give your whole self to him, you know you can trust him because he first gave his whole self for us. And in giving himself up on a cross, he gave us life. Thirst-quenching, soul-satisfying, deep-fulfilling life in this world and the next. So it's not only safe to worship him. It makes sense to live for him. It's actually what we were made for. Everybody worships something. Pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. Anything that is except Jesus. Well, having found this to be true, next week we'll see this woman's response. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we thank you once again for seeing that these words spoken so many years ago are as relevant uh, today as they ever were. We ask you to help us to see that Jesus is not just a kind of safe place, a safe person to throw our lot into, but he is the only sensible one uh, to give our whole lives to. Uh, Please help us to see how foolish it is uh, to be giving our lives to anything else. And help those of us who know this already to be uh, redoubling our efforts to follow Jesus. And for any here who haven't yet done that, please give them all that they need to be able to turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen.